our church. With that, let us now turn to our scripture for this morning. Pastor Bill will be continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark, preaching the sermon called The King Who Heals. It will be Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And I'll be reading from the ESV. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And the woman who was there, who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, saying, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Good morning. If we have not yet had the privilege to meet my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. And as Luke just said, we've been studying the book of Mark in our Sunday morning teaching series. And we are now in a section where instead of listening to Jesus tell us about the power of the kingdom of God, he did that just recently in several different parables, instead of telling us about the kingdom of God, he's now showing it to us. He's doing miracles that bring the power of God and the power of the kingdom into this world in a way that we can actually see. And what you're discovering is that against the backdrop 
of the kingdom of God in all of its glory, in all of its goodness, against that backdrop, the world that you and I live in is really broken. It's broken and dangerous. Two weeks ago, we watched as Jesus calmed a storm that threatened the lives of him and his disciples. Last week, we watched him as he banished evil from a man that was trying to destroy him personally, cut him off from everyone else around him. This week, as you just heard, Jesus' power frees someone from physical suffering that was getting worse, and he brings another person back from the dead. And as you think about those four accounts, you realize that there's a theme that runs through them, that you and I live in a world that is under the threat of death. Powerful forces of nature, evil spiritual beings, debilitating bodily suffering, they are all working to undo your life. Each of them is intent on removing every single person from this planet. And you're also learning that God's just not okay with that. That's not what the, he planned for this world. And so Jesus came to bring God's kingdom into this one. And as he does that, he's bringing miracles that alter this world in line with God's intentions. And as, you, as he does that, you're catching little glimpses of what the nature and the character of this kingdom is like. Nature and character that reflect God and his character. God is the source of all life, and so his kingdom is one of life not of death it's a kingdom that promotes life it promotes health it promotes human flourishing it's a kingdom that reverses everything that is wrong with this world kingdom that removes suffering kingdom that banishes death kingdom that banishes everything that has to do with death it's an amazing thing to see what god is doing here and yet you realize god is not doing that immediately that kingdom is here jesus really brought it to this world but it's not fully here not as fully as we would like it to be we still face all of those other things that put us on the pathway to death and you have to wonder why if god hates all of those things and he has the plan and the power to undo all of those things why doesn't he get on with it why not finish Today's passage helps us understand why by teaching us three very important things about the kind of restoration that Jesus is bringing. First, we learn that God often makes people wait for his restoration. It's a very hard truth that we're going to have to take in this morning. God often makes his people wait for restoration. Secondly, we see that God cares about us even more than we do while we wait. And then third, we learn that there are reasons to trust him when we're waiting. We're going to learn that God will make you wait, that he cares about you even while you wait, and that there are reasons to trust him when you're waiting. So first, God will often make you wait. The woman who comes up behind Jesus to touch his clothes has a chronic condition, some kind of internal bleeding that she's had for 12 years. That's a really long time to have something wrong with you, especially something where you're bleeding and the bleeding won't stop. She's tried to get better. She went to many doctors, spent everything she had, but instead of getting better, she actually went the other way. She got worse. Now, see if you can understand what that emotional roller coaster would be like for her. Have you ever had something wrong with you that you've started to worry about? 
something that you knew was wrong with you, but you were a little embarrassed by, and so you didn't want anybody else to know that about you. Maybe it was something physical, like this lady's. Or maybe it was more emotional, more relational. Something that you couldn't control in your life, something you couldn't seem to overcome. You knew that you needed to ask for help, but you just don't want to because it, it's embarrassing. You don't want anybody else to know that. But because it didn't get better, at some point the pain and your concern did what? It got bigger than the embarrassment. And so you reached out for help. Ever have something like that? I've had a lot of them <laughs> like that. What happens internally when you do that, when you finally reach out? There's relief inside. <laughs> relief because, okay, good, I'm finally about to get the help that I need. This lady did that. Got herself to the point of asking for help, but she didn't get help. She didn't get cured. The cure that they gave her did not work. Instead, she got worse. So she tried again. Verse 26, she saw many physicians. Many times she had to work her way past her embarrassment, past the prior failures, risk getting her hopes up again, reach out for help, and get worse. Worse until verse 26, she had spent all that she had completely impoverished by this thing that she cannot get free from. Now that would be absolutely horrendous to go through in the modern world. But she didn't live in the modern world. She lived in Israel, where it was even worse. There was a greater significance to a constant flow of blood. It meant that she was unclean. Ritually pure doesn't mean that she sinned, but she was ritually impure, which meant that she was not able to approach God in the temple. That was the physical location where he would meet with his people, where his presence was. She was separated from him, cut off from the presence of God. You learn about this kind of impurity back in a book called Leviticus chapter 15, and you learn that was, this was true for both men and women, that if you had a discharge coming from your body, Regardless of your gender, if your body was putting something outside that it should not, or if it was failing to keep something in you that it should, then you were unclean. And you were unclean for as long as you had that discharge. Now why is that? We live in a very different kind of world. One way to look at clean and unclean is to think of the difference between life and death. God is connected with life. We've already said that. And so anything on the pathway of life connects to him, and therefore that's considered clean. Conversely, anything on the pathway of death, the path that leads away from him, is unclean. So if your body is doing something that it should not be doing, it's discharging something, especially blood, it's not working in the way that agrees with life. It's not working in a way that leads you to life and to greater life. And in this case, when you're losing blood, you're actually losing life. And that puts you on this other pathway, the one that is unclean, the one that moves away from God. So you can't come into God's presence with that uncleanness. You cannot bring death or anything that has the scent of death into his presence with you. You have to wait until your body is no longer doing that thing and you've been purified before you can go back into his presence. But we're told that this lady has had this discharge now 
for 12 years. That means she's not been able to enter into God's presence for 12 years. Cut off from God. But she's also been cut off from her community. Uncleanness was contagious. Anything that she touched would then also become unclean. And all you had to do was touch the thing that she had touched, and then you would be unclean. And so not only is she slowly losing her life, physically, economically, she's cut off from everyone else, cut off from God, cut off from everyone else's presence as well. And here's the hard part of the reality of that story. God has not healed her for 12 years. God has not healed her. Clearly, it's not hard for him to do that. All she has to do is touch Jesus' clothes. That's enough. Tells you God could easily have healed her. He could end her physical and her economic slide toward death. He could end her isolation. And he didn't until he arrived in, on the scene in person. He made her wait 12 years. It's a really long time. He also made Jairus wait. Jairus didn't have to wait as long, but the stakes were higher. Verse 23, his daughter was at the point of death. She's about to die. Again, put yourself into that picture. You're watching your little girl get worse and worse and worse. And so you try all the things that you normally do, and nothing works. You get more and more anxious. You start wondering, well, what, what are we going to do now? And then you hear that Jesus is back on this side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 27, there are reports of him and what he's doing going around. Reports about how he can heal people. So Jairus came to him. He sacrifices all of his dignity, falls at Jesus' feet, and begs him, verse 23, come, lay your hands on my little daughter so that she, she may be made well and live. And Jesus agrees. And you can feel the hope now that starts to bubble up in Jairus, but then Jesus delays. He delays when every minute counts. He delays with ridiculous questions about who's bumping into him in a crowd. He delays by talking to a woman who's already healed. Delays until Jairus' daughter is past the point of being able to be healed. Until she's dead. God made him wait. Both of these people, God makes wait. What's the implication here for us? Very hard implication. God is not afraid to make you wait as well. He may allow you to have some kind of physical condition that you don't want, of which you can't be healed. Or he may let you be in some kind of accident, something that hurts you both physically and economically may leave you in a job that you don't really want, let you buy a house that's in a condition that you can't fix. It's growing mold. The foundation is sinking. may surround you with neighbors, don't invite you to their community events who don't want you. Some kind of suffering that you didn't create for yourself that comes from living in a broken world, something that you've prayed about, something that you have done, everything that you possibly can to change, and it hasn't changed. Something that God could change, but just as obviously isn't. 
God often makes his people wait. And you probably won't like it any more than anyone else ever has. So why? Why would the God who's made you make you wait? Doesn't he care? That brings us to point two. He makes us wait because there is something necessary in the waiting. Something necessary for us. Something that he can't do in our lives apart from us having to wait. It's not that he doesn't care about what we care about. It's that he cares about much more than the narrow thing that we care about. He cares about that, but he cares about much more. Think about this woman again. What does she want? She wants to be healed. She wants to stop bleeding. And that's it. That's all that's in her mind. Listen to her thoughts. Verse 28, if I touch his garments, I'll be made well. I don't need to come face to face with Jesus like Jairus just did. I don't need to talk to him. I don't need to ask him for anything. I just need to touch him and then I'm out of here. And she's well on her way, isn't she? She touches Jesus, immediately senses inside of her body that she's been healed and she doesn't say a word. Now Jesus knows something has happened. The power has gone out of him. It's clearly not the people in front of him. So he turns around and he asks, verse 30, who touched my garments? And she must not have said something immediately because his disciples start making fun of him. They say, verse 31, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? Jesus, are you kidding? Look around you. <laughs> Everybody's touching you. They're mocking him. They'd only say that if what? If the lady didn't reveal herself. If she didn't come forward. Instead, she leaves Jesus standing there, verse 32, looking around to see who had done it. That tells you something about what she's looking for and what she's not looking for. What does she want? She wants to be well. She wants what Jesus has to offer, what he can do for her, but she's pretty content if that's all she ends up with. Now, why is that? Speculation. A couple of options, right? One option is that she wants his help, but she doesn't want him. She wants a healing, not a healer. A cure without a Christ. Could be that. Lots of people are like that, including lots of people in the church. Is that what it is, or is it that after 12 years, she does not dare presume that she can have anything more than that? That she doesn't dare hope that he will accept her, embrace her, she doesn't dare hope that he won't pull away from her in disgust like everyone else does, making sure that she doesn't defile him by touching him. It's what she's used to. Did she not want a connection with him, or did she think that wasn't possible, that he would not embrace her? Either way, she comes up to him telling herself she's only looking for a cure. And then things get away from her. She finds herself the focus of his attention. She's caught up in a relationship with the Lord of glory, with the Lord of life, with the Lord of health himself. This is not what she planned. 
And yet in that moment, she discovers something amazing. Jesus is not disgusted by her. Jesus wants her because he wants more for her than what she was willing to settle for. More for her than what she wants herself. He wants a relationship with her. Something that goes way beyond what she was looking for. Something that she needs more than she knows. See, if she had been healed, and just healed, that would have been good. She needed that, but she needed far more than that because she was actually worse than she knew. Think further down the road than a mere 12 years. What's going to happen to her after she's healed? She's now clean on the pathway of life. But at some point, her body's going to get some other kind of ailment, isn't it? Some other kind of malfunction. Something that will put her right back on to the pathway of death. Even if she manages to avoid every disease and plague for the rest of her life, something's going to happen to her on this earth that will end her life. And if all she has in that moment from Jesus is a healed body, if she has no relationship with him, no connection, then she'll be ex back exactly where she was when she was unclean. Unable to enter into God's presence. Only this time after her death, without Jesus wanting her, without Jesus knowing her, it's going to be an eternal separation away from God's presence. An eternity without real life, an eternity separated from the source of life. And Jesus doesn't want that for her. He wants more. She's tried to teach him like a living talisman, you know, like some kind of magic object that if you just touch the right way, it'll do what you want. He shatters that idea. Shatters it with the very first word that comes out of his mouth to her. Verse 34, daughter, he says, your faith has made you well. Daughter. Think about what that meant to her. Daughter, this is personal, not impersonal. A connection with me, not a stray encounter with my clothes. Daughter, your family, you're no longer on the outside, isolated, cut off from everyone. You're now on the inside. You can't get any closer than family. Daughter, you have a new identity a new relational status, a new claim on me. Daughter, you're in my presence. I see you, and I'm not disgusted by you. I see you, and I know you. I see you, and I want you. And then he tells her why. He says, your faith has made you well. Your faith, very special word for an Israelite. Word that will take you all the way back to Abraham. That was how Abraham reached back to God when God reached down to Abraham. God promised Abraham a son when there was no possible way for that to happen. Similar kind of case, right? When all other options were exhausted. And Abraham believed what God said to him. That's what faith is. It's taking God at his word believing God that when he says he'll make sure that you have a friendship with him, you can count on it. You can take that to the bank. You absolutely will have a friendship with him. 
Thousands of years later, here's Jesus saying to this woman, your faith has made you well. It's your faith, your confidence in me that made you well. Your faith that has made you clean. Your faith is personal. You thought it was about clothes, but it's not. There's something inside of you that wants a whole lot more, something that actually wants me. And I want you, and you needed to know that. So I stopped to find you before you could run away. You and I are good now. You're clean in God's presence. And now you can go in peace. She got far more than she was looking for. Let that encourage you. Let it encourage your heart this morning. That's your God. That's God's heart. But don't overlook the path that got her to this point. Because it was her need that drove her there. Her need that she could not resolve in any other way. Her need that God had a hand in. He allowed it to go on for so long that it brought her to the end of herself. Brought her to the end of what she could do for herself. She needed a cure for her uncleanness. A cure that no one else on earth could give her for any amount of money that she could give them. She had to come to the end of herself first. And then in desperation, what does she do? Then she reaches out to Jesus, which is true of a lot of us, especially those of us who are raised in a religious setting like she was. She lived in Israel. For those of us who are raised in church, very similar kind of setting. You can be raised in a church and you can learn how to live a pretty decent life without seeing a very big need for God. And so, okay, we'll go to church because that's just what you're supposed to do. But we learn over time that we can keep him at arm's length and everything will just, what, it'll basically work out. We learn that we can have a good life without really wanting a relationship with the giver of life. And then what happens for some of us? God lets us run into something that makes us desperate that shows how small we are, shows us how little we can do for ourselves, shows us how much we really need, how much we really need him, how dependent on him we are. And when that happens, that's his mercy to you, his mercy to me, just like it's his mercy to this lady. God, in making her wait, maneuvered her to himself, so that he could meet her greatest need. He is very willing to do that. Very willing to trade 12 years here on earth to ensure that she did not miss an eternity with him. You should not be surprised when you discover that he's willing to make the same trade for you in your life. When he does that, remind yourself that he only makes you wait. He only brings you to the end of yourself to give you something better than you were hoping for. And it always has to do with getting more of him. Even if you didn't realize that that's what you really needed. Even if you didn't think that that's what you really wanted. Jesus gave this lady more than she asked for, just like he gave Jairus more than he asked for. And he called Jairus to have the faith, the same kind of faith the lady showed. He said to Jairus, Jairus has just heard that his daughter is dead. He says to him, verse 36, do not fear only believe. 
Believe what? Believe that the same one who can do something for a woman who had no hope anywhere else can also do something for you who has no hope anywhere else. It calls Jairus to have faith when everything inside says, there's no hope now. Jesus made me wait too long. But then the question, why? Why should Jairus believe? Point three. Why should Jairus believe, or maybe more importantly this morning, why should you and I believe? Why should we trust Jesus to believe, especially when he makes us wait? Are there good reasons to do that? There's actually a number in this passage. So, for instance, we could spend time looking at how Jesus shares our humanity when he didn't have to. That he voluntarily comes to earth in a human body that gets sick, that catches diseases, just like everyone else's does. And so from the moment Jesus is conceived, he is living under the threat of death, just like you and just like me. Why trust him when you have to wait? Because he made his own life harder when he didn't have to, in order to give you so much more than you wanted. To give you a personal connection with the living God. He went through all that you do, not for his sake. He didn't need that. He did it for yours. You can trust his heart for you when he calls you to do something hard, like wait. We could do, look at that, or we could spend time looking at how much people affect him. How he alters his plans based on people's needs. That he is willing, in a moment, to drop everything when Jairus asks him. But then that he interrupts that journey when someone else reaches out to him. Why hope when he makes you wait? Because you see the kind of intense personal care that he gives to each person. And you realize that that's the same kind of intense personal care that he's giving to you as well. Watching him helps you know that you won't have to wait any more than is absolutely necessary for him to care for you in that same kind of way. Or we could spend time looking at how much ridicule he has to endure in order to help the people whom he makes wait. Disciples laugh at him when he wants to know who touched him. He shows up at Jairus' house. The Lord of life who made life announces the child's not dead, and the crowd laughs at him. He's mocked everywhere he goes as he calls people to something better than they ever imagined. And it doesn't set him off his square, does not move him in the slightest, does not slow him down, does not deter him. He ignores all of those because he knows what he's doing in each person's life. That means he's not going to let himself get distracted from giving you what you need either. We could look at all those reasons and spend a lot of time, reasons to believe him when he makes us wait, but I want us to focus on the biggest reason in this passage. And the biggest reason to trust him is that he risks defiling himself on your behalf. He walks to where the child is, verse 41, and he takes her by the hand. She's dead. The mourners know it. Those who are with him know it. We learn that they are overcome, verse 42, with amazement when he told her, little girl, I say to you, arise, and she did. The people there were overcome. Why? They know that she didn't just pass out, that she's just in a coma, that she's just resting. They know she's dead. Which means Jesus reached out and touched a dead body. 
something that will make you instantly unclean, put you far, far down the path of death, a path away from God. Jesus reaches out, takes her by the hand, and what? He is not afraid of sharing in her uncleanness, in sharing with her in her death. How can you not trust someone like that? Someone who is not afraid to share with you in the worst, most lifeless thing that you have to offer. But someone who reaches out to take your hand in the worst moment. Who takes your hand and says, I've got you. I am not afraid to enter into this moment with you. It doesn't matter what you've done. How often you've done it. It doesn't matter how far down the path of death you've gone, how far you've gone from God, I will reach out and I will take hold of you. And since I've got you, the very worst thing that can happen to you, death, since I've got you, that won't be any worse than taking a nap. A nap that I will wake you up from. Child is not dead she's just asleep and he says to her arise jesus reaches out and takes your hand holds on to you and he keeps holding on to you even though you defile him that's what second corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 means we read there that god made him who had no sin to be sin for us he touches him, us, and we defile him. He became sin who knew no sin. He touches us willingly, takes us by the hand, connects with us. Even though he was perfectly clean, he reached out to us, took the initiative to take on our uncleanness, to share in it with us. And he did that so that we would share in his cleanness. That's the rest of the verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might share in his cleanness. The woman who touches him shares in the health that he has. She takes on his cleanness. She's back in the presence of God. The little girl shares in his life. She shares in his cleanness, back in the presence of God. When you trust Jesus to make you clean, to make you able to stand in God's presence, he grabs hold of your hand so that you can share in his life. Even though taking hold of you will defile him and will send him to death on the cross. Even though that's where holding you takes him, he holds on to you anyway. He takes hold of you even though the Father forsakes him on the cross. What's that mean? It means he lost his father's hand on the cross. But even though he loses the father's hand and knows that he will, he takes hold of yours anyway. He loses the father's hand so that he will never lose yours. So that one day, holding your hand, he will raise you from the dead and you will hear the same words that he said to this little girl so that you will share in his resurrection with him just like he shared in your death. Why would you not trust someone 
like that. Even if he makes you wait. This is the most tender, most loving, most dedicated, dedicated to your best interest, most dedicated person you've ever met. How could you not listen when he says, do not fear, only believe. So how do you do that? If something is bubbling up inside, stirring inside of you, how do you do that? How do you take this out of the world of theological reflection and live this on a day-to-day level? How do you bring this out of 2,000 years ago so that you can live this this afternoon? You have to do what Jairus had to do as he walked to his house. During that walk, he had a choice. A choice that sounded a little bit like this in his mind. I will either focus on my fear. Jesus said, do not fear. I will either focus on my fear that my baby girl is dead because I had to wait. Or I will focus on Jesus' promise to me. That was his choice. He has to focus on one or the other because either of those, whichever one he focuses on, will push the other one out. There's only room for one in his mind. He has to think about one or the other has to turn over and over one of these in his mind. has to have one of them be his center of gravity. Either death, focus on that. Fear of death, focus on that. Or Jesus' promise, focus on that. You have that same choice. In this sense, it is a matter of what you meditate on, of what you allow your heart to ruminate on, what you choose to focus Either you will focus on this thing that you don't want in your life. This thing that you just want to have go away. You'll spend time thinking about how awful it is. How much it's ruining your life. How it could get worse. How much you want something else. How great life would be if you had something else. You'll either remind yourself of this thing countless numbers of times during the day. Or you'll focus on Jesus holding your hand while you have this other thing. Not you first holding his, but him first holding yours. And then you'll think of all the reasons why you should trust him to do what's best for you. You'll think about how much he went through just to have you. Of how he was willing to be defiled so that you could be clean. You'll think about how good he is, how good his intentions are, even if he makes you wait, just like Jairus had to focus on him and trust him. He had to push his fears to the side. He had to focus on Jesus, on this one who interrupted what he was doing just to help Jairus. This one who had already been touched by someone who was unclean and who had embraced that person even more. This one who was still willing to go to Jairus' house where there was a dead body that would defile him. This one who was saying, I'm willing, personally, to be unclean for your sake. You will focus on one or the other. The thing that you hate, that you just wish you could be done with, or Jesus, who loves you like no one else ever has, even when he makes you wait. We're about to celebrate communion. It's an opportunity to reflect on exactly what Jesus paid in order for the privilege of holding your hand. I want you to take three, four minutes now
musicians will come play for us. Take three or four minutes and decide what you're going to focus on. Maybe there's some times where you're going to need to confess, Lord God, I have focused on all the things I have nothing to do with you. I've downplayed who you are. I've downplayed what a friendship with you is really all about. Lord God, I want that like I've never wanted anything else. Take a few moments and then we'll share communion together.